This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast Podcast Network. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, as part of our town hall series in partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma, we present a conversation with Representative Beth Dolio, a candidate for Congress in the 10th Congressional District, a district that includes portions of Thurston, Pierce, and Mason counties, as well as the cities of Olympia and Puyallup. This conversation was recorded live on the evening of Tuesday, July 14th. Welcome, everybody. Our guest tonight, Beth Dolio, is a state representative from Washington's 22nd Legislative District. Recently, she served as the campaign director at Climate Solutions, a Northwest-based clean energy economy nonprofit. She was also the founding executive director of the Washington Conservation Voters, and she was a field organizer for NARAL. And she served as a campaign organizer and development director for Audubon, Washington, and she is currently running for Congress in the 10th Congressional District. Representative Beth Dolio, it is so great to have you on tonight. Welcome. Thank you so much, Stefan. It's really nice to be here. So you have garnered an extraordinary string of very high profile endorsements. Uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, Pramila Jaya, Paul Jamie Raskin, just to name a very few. And I should point out that although you have a number of Democratic opponents running for this seat, you are here by yourself tonight in this town hall because you have garnered the sole endorsement from all three major indivisible groups in your district. And so I thought maybe we'd start there. What does garnering the indivisible endorsement mean to you? Ah, what a, I mean, it's a really quite an honor to have all three, Tacoma, Olympia, Puyallup. um, And, you know, I think it, 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 it's so important and so special to me because over the past few years, I've marched with Olympia Indivisible in particular in the district that I represent um, and Thurston County Indivisible. I've spoken to, you know, rallies um, that have been organized by Indivisible. I've taken actions on the alerts that come into my um, into my email box. It's helped me gain insights into what's going on. Um, I'm just really thrilled and honored to have the endorsement of Indivisible. And I'm I'm really looking forward to um, to working with uh, folks in all three Indivisibles to help, you know, to help take this seat and make this seat a progressive seat for Congress. This is one of the few opportunities across the nation that we have to pick up a member for the Congressional Progressive Caucus and, um, you know, the vision and the work that that indivisibles have been doing across the country is changing the politics in this country of the Democratic Party, and I'm excited to be a part of that. Well, you know, you you mentioned you, you are uh, a self-professed, very strong progressive, and uh, progressives in Congress night right now seem to have a very strong hand, at least insofar as they played a very big part in helping shape Joe Biden's campaign platform. And I will ask you, should the Democrats take the Senate and White House, and this, uh, for those of you who cannot see, is me crossing my fingers vigorously, um, how do you think the progressive wing should use its leverage to get policy through? And then, and how do you see yourself in that role? Well, first of all, I think we should just keep doing what we're doing. We're making a lot of progress. I mean, Biden's platform that he is rolling out is really exciting. I mean, I'm I am excited. I hope you're excited because the things that he's rolling out right now um, are really going to move our nation forward in with with much more progressive policies, policies that really center 
racial justice, that center workers that, you know, aren't, aren't basically giving more money to the wealthy. Um, and, you know, Bernie Sanders running for president and really um, articulating the, the shrinking middle class and uh, the concentration of wealth in the hands of the few and workers' rights, I mean, all, and climate change. I mean, that we are just moving the Democratic Party into a place where I think we can just enact you know, significant progressive policy if we are, fingers crossed, take back the presidency and the Senate. Now, in terms of what I want to do, you know, I, I am very excited to join with Pramila Jayapal, who has been uh, a mentor to me through this campaign process. She is very much looking forward to having a friend in the Washington delegation. She's alone in the delegation, really, as a um, very outspoken progressive. And she is, uh, she and I are looking forward to really um, bringing more of a progressive voice to the state of Washington and really trying to move to trying to get things done together in Washington, D.C. So that's the role I'm going to play. I mean, I already have a number of endorsements of progressives uh, across the nation. And so I'm starting to build those relationships now as we speak. And I'm excited to put those relationships into action and do what I've been able to do at the state level, which is move a lot of landmark legislation on a lot of progressive policies by working with the progressives, but also working across, across my caucus and across the aisle to get a ton done. And that's what I plan to do in Congress if I'm elected. That really does speak to your style and, and the way that you have distinguished yourself in the state legislature. We have a, a listener audience question. Are there particular committees that you would like to be assigned to? What, what do you think you could make the biggest impact? First of all, I have to get there. <laughs> so that's the first thing. But assuming that I win, um, I'm, I'm very interested in the Energy and Commerce Committee, the Natural Resources Committee. Um, I'm also interested in the Education and Labor Committee, um, the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, you know, I think um, Biden bringing out his climate plan today and really sort of setting, um, you know, drawing the line in the sand. This is the, this is the date certain that we're, we want to be fossil free in our electric sector, 100 um, percent. And these are the kinds of things that we want to move forward. I think there's just a lot of opportunity there. So I would like to sit on the select committee on, on the climate crisis uh, if that's a committee that exists in 2021, and I assume it will be. But those are some of the committees I'm interested in. So let's go ahead and jump off with climate, because I, I think I'm not speaking out of turn by saying that this is probably your key issue. It's something that you've been working uh, on in a, in a professional capacity. I will just ask you, as a legislator, as a candidate, as, a, as an individual, as a citizen, how do you philosophically frame the climate crisis? Well, you're right. It is, it is my signature issue. It is something that I definitely chose, why I chose to run for the state legislature. I also chose to run for the state legislature and for Congress because there just simply aren't enough women uh, in, you know, elected and there's even fewer <laughs> at the congressional level. So those two things in particular really do drive me uh, to public service. Um, I, I really think what we've done in Washington state in 2019, when we put together with the help of the governor, a suite of policies that broke down uh, the emitting sectors, so buildings, electricity, and transportation, and had policies crafted around them to bring down emissions to meet our 
greenhouse gas emission goals that are in statute. That's the kind of thing that we can do in Congress. I think rallying around 100% clean electricity, clean energy by 2035 is something that the country can get behind. And, and there's a forward vision about where we're headed. There's a date certain. There's something to reach for. There's something that is going to, 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 to leave a planet that our kids and their kids and the next generations beyond them can live on sustainably. And so I think we don't have a lot of time. And, you know, if we had more time, maybe I wouldn't be running for Congress, but we don't have enough time. So I, I you know, I threw my hat in um, to, to run for this seat because I think we need people who have the knowledge, who actually understand the policies and the coalitions that need to be built in order to move that policy forward because we are running out of time. I want to stay on Biden's $2 trillion plan to to boost clean energy. And as you say, he has moved the transition date to 2035. Governor Inslee has called this visionary. Uh, Biden said in a statement, quote, when I think of climate change, the word I think about is jobs. I'm, I'm curious if you think that's the right way to frame this and and how and where you would see green job development here in Washington. So I think that we have to have a multi-pronged approach to framing it. The Showalter are being moved out of their homes to higher land because we have sea level rise. Our oysters in this state need to, to be, they, they, they need to go to Hawaii uh, to, 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 to create, you know, to uh, spawn oysters uh, because it's too warm in the waters here in the Puget Sound to do that. Uh, we are, we are subject to smoke every summer because of the wildfires throughout our state. That is a frame that I think is really important that we keep in mind as we move towards the kinds of policies at scale that we need to pass at the federal level in order to address this. My son said to me, my 16 year old son said to me, mom, this is the most important issue for my generation. You have to go to Congress because you're the best person to fix it. And our generation owes that to the, to the new generation. And we need the new generation to keep pushing us and pushing us so hard. So I, I um, you know, we can't continue to dig the hole. We can't continue to build new fossil fuel infrastructure, massive fossil fuel infrastructure. Hence my work on the, on the, the, the uh, coal campaign, turning back, you know, stopping seven coal export terminals dead in their tracks. But at the same time, yes, indeed, there's a ton of jobs that are going to be needed, you know, that we will create as we are creating our new fossil-free future. There's a ton of infrastructure that needs to be built in order to get solar that we can create on the east side of the state over to the west side of the state. There's a ton of wind turbines that need to be put up. There's a ton of buildings that need to be made more efficient. So I prime sponsored a bill in the legislature that is a um, green buildings bill. And it's the first in the nation that sets an emissions performance standard or an efficiency standard. So, so you know, you have to ha have, the building has to be so efficient to meet the standard set by the state. And we put $75 million into that to create jobs to go into those buildings and make those existing commercial buildings more efficient. That is jobs. And that's the kind of role that the federal government can play state government is playing it here in Washington, and there are a ton of jobs 
that we need to create and that will be created as we move towards a new future. Well, you know, the next thing that I was going to ask you about was uh, the response to the pandemic at the federal level. And I, I will just ask you, you know, right now we are looking potentially at a, a jobs crisis. Certainly, I believe at its peak, I, I can't think of the exact number, but it was an extraordinary number of Washingtonians out of work because of the pandemic. Uh, before I ask you about some more specific things related to the recovery, I will just ask you, do you see uh, a jobs creation, a green jobs creation type program being scalable in the immediate to be able to help with this most current recovery effort that we're obviously going to be facing in the next few years here in the state? Well, I don't think it's immediate. Unfortunately, I think that we have um, such a lack of leadership at the federal level that the um, that our public health is really what's immediate. Um, I don't think that we can, we are, we are going to need to really make sure that um, people have access to healthcare, people have um, monies in their pocket to be, so that they're not falling through the cracks, losing their homes as, as people become, you know, unemployed and our economy goes into deeper recession. I mean, the, those really are the top priorities as we, you know, need to keep people safe from unnecessary deaths that have been created by the lack of leadership at the federal level. Um, you know, I don't have a crystal ball when we're gonna be able to figure out how we're gonna ramp up, you know, our, our testing is ramped up, but unfortunately our ability to deliver the results to people at a, on a timely basis has not ramped up. LabCorp just simply doesn't have the machines to process it quickly enough. That's why it's taking anywhere from you know, seven days to two weeks to get your test results back. We're not going to move through this pandemic with that kind of an infrastructure in place around testing very quickly. So, um, so I think it is more, you know, I, you know, I think it's when, I, when I'm sworn in in 2021, January, fingers crossed, um, that's the time that I'm hoping that we will be able to start to put together a stimulus package that begins to really, um, you know, basically, I mean, Joe Biden's plan is what we need to do in terms of putting people back to work and making massive investments in building out our infrastructure um, and making making our, our, our fossil-free future a reality instead of just a words on the paper right now. Yeah. I will ask you specifically about what is kind of coming down the pike for us right now. Um, Governor Inslee, as of today, just paused the reopening. Uh, infection rates are currently spiking across the state. So this, of course, is going to mean a pause in people being able to go back to work. But as we know, the unemployment relief, the $600 checks, they're set to expire in two weeks. And the HEROES Act is still sitting on McConnell's desk. I'll just ask you, are there things that you would like to do in the immediate? For example, I know that as a state representative, you supported Congresswoman Jayapal's Paycheck Guarantee Act. Why do you think that's a better approach than simply extending unemployment? Well, it keeps people employed, you know? I mean, it also keeps them uh, connected to their health care, which is another massive problem that we need to fix because, frankly, healthcare shouldn't be tied to employment. And we, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about Medicare for all, but I am a strong proponent of Medicare for all. And it's pretty clear. Wouldn't we rather have people employed than on unemployment or in unemployed? Um, I think that it would have been a better plan from the beginning. Unfortunately, that's not the direction that we went. Um, you know, the direction that we, we did go, I think, you know, definitely has uplifted, um, those people who have been displaced from their work at this moment, 
But in terms of the long term, and, and you know, I think the, the um, PPP, the loans to small businesses, you know, I know my husband took one of those out and he w- was able to keep his entire staff employed um, throughout the pandemic. Um, and, you know, he works at a healthcare facility, a small healthcare facility, and, you know, they are, are fully staffed in providing healthcare to people in, in the 10th congressional district. So um, oh, there were some things that were done well. Um, I, it is unfortunate that we did not go with the Paycheck Guarantee Act um, initially. So I, I'm not. I don't. I. I don't know where the Senate is headed, um, but I certainly hope that they prioritize making sure that those who are displaced, um, those who are who are at risk of being displaced, and our small businesses are the first in line for um, uh, for relief dollars. Well, as you say, this is definitely an ongoing uh, situation. I want to bring in the racial equity aspect to this uh, because BIPOC people we're finding are getting infected at three times the rates of whites and are twice as likely to die for it, uh, die from it for numerous reasons, economic, environmental, uh, systemic racism. How do you think we should be addressing this specifically? Well, first of all, this is really nothing new. It's just a, it's just a heightened spotlight. Um, the inequities in our system across this nation, um, when it comes to black and brown people, are you know it's an it's an institutional, it's wages, it's education, it's healthcare, and you know it is interesting that we've had these sort of the pandemic and the George Floyd murder um, and the recession sort of all happening at one time, and it has really laid bare for everyone to see very clearly the inequities in our nation. And, you know, when it comes to healthcare, um, you know, the health outcomes for black and brown people in this country are not as good. Um, and we need, you know, I think one thing is uh, that healthcare providers, just like police officers, need impl- implicit bias training. That should be part and parcel of any kind of um, healthcare education that you're getting in this nation. Because you don't share the culture of the, every person walking into your office, um, but you need to have knowledge. You, no one physician or nurse can be as diverse, um, just like no one congressperson can be as diverse as the, as, as the constituents and the patients that they serve. But we have a responsibility to have an understanding of how to provide care to everyone that walks through that door. And that comes through education. And, and we have a lot of control over what, what kinds of education people get when they are pursuing healthcare degrees. And so we need to in, in, infuse it with implicit bias training. Um, uh, so that, that's, that's one thing off the bat. And, and then we, you know, we just got to tear down lots of institutions and, 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 the, and, and the racism that is within them um, and really start, start fresh. Um, to, to combat the racism that, that, is, it, that is so prevalent um, in our country and so much on display at this moment in our history. Yeah, it permeates virtually everything the, the more that we, yes, that we look into this. And it feels to me like we have a unique window of time to advance racial equity in this country right now. Public opinion has virtually in, inverted in favor of racial justice and Black Lives Matter. So with that in mind, what are some things that you would like to do to seize this moment and create systemic change? Well, you know, I mean, I, I have I have a 
pretty extensive policy history in the, as a state legislator in trying to move um, and change institutions. So for example, I introduced a bill that requires cultural competency and implicit bias training in our schools. Everything from superintendents, to school board members, to teachers, to paraeducators, to bus drivers, the bill was very comprehensive. Um, and you know, in many ways, schools are where we get a lot of our information and a lot of our knowledge about how we interact and how we socialize. You know, that's where our kids get that information. Um, and so I think, I think that's a policy that I'm interested in seeing um, move forward. I also, my first bill as a legislator, as, as Julie mentioned, um, was around police accountability. In 2015, Andre and Bryson, two young black men in Olympia, were shot by a police officer. Bryson will spend the rest of his life in a wheelchair as a result of that incident. And the Black Alliance of Thurston County and other social justice activists within the community researched the law and realized that we have this perverse malice standard to have any kind of police accountability. Um, and, uh, and so they started organizing around that. That happened, that, that started right here in the 10th Congressional District. And I worked alongside as an activist. And then when I got elected, we worked together to actually drop the very first bill of the session because it was such an important issue in this community. And I went out on a limb. It wasn't, you know, it, you know, like you said, it, things have inverted. It, you know, public opinion has changed. Public knowledge has changed because of what's happened in the last few months. But that wasn't the case then. And uh, it was a very controversial issue and I, and I was new and, um, but I knew that those families deserved accountability. Nanny Ellis's family, my heart goes out to his mom and his sister who are experiencing this and they're not, the investigation is not taking place and the community hasn't followed the, what the statute says now because 940, you know, this, this issue went on to become 940, which passed overwhelmingly the voters and the, and the, and Pierce County is not following the, the guidelines in 940. And so the family is left waiting to have something, to have the investigation even really start. Um, so we have so much work to do around police accountability, and that is definitely an issue. You know, the Police Justice Act at the federal level is a good start. We need to ban chokeholds. We need to ban no-knock no warrants. Um, we need to require implicit bias training for our police officers, and then we need to really look at the funding. And I mean, this is a fundamental issue that we haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about in the last, you know, you know, at least that, that's, this is a new conversation um, in terms of the level of conversation around defunding the police. Um, and clearly we need to imagine what public safety looks like for every single person in this country, regardless of the color of their skin, because that's not how people feel right now. And we need to have a deep conversation about it, and we need policies that address it. I will just ask you philosophically, given everything that you've said, how you see the problem of police violence. Do you see it as a matter of just rooting out a few bad apples, or do you see it as more cultural and systemic to the nature of policing itself? That is such a hard question to answer. Um, I, I guess I see that 
we live in a racist culture and I think it's just, I think it's part of the culture and it's, it's not just police forces. It, it's, it's, it's all of us. Um, and you know, like you said, we are on potentially on the cusp of really addressing that, but it's not just a moment in time where we're going to address that. It's something that all of us as a community, as a nation have to make a commitment to. It's a lifelong journey to tear down the institutions and the understanding of racism within ourselves and how we relate to our community within those bounds that we have been raised in and that we, we deal with every day and question and, and, and change and move forward to a new future um, where, where you know, a, a police force helps people feel safe in their communities. And, you know, I am not a black or brown person that has a police officer, you know, that when I get pulled over where I have a certain procedure that I've been told about from the beginning of time about how I should respond. That is not how I grew up. Um, and that's not how anybody should grow up. And we have a responsibility, no matter the color of our skin, to take that on, to challenge the status quo, and to make change. And well, related to that, let's turn to a listener question from Marty. She asks, uh, would you work to defund ICE? Uh, immigration Customs Enforcement also has a reputation for excessive violence. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, we just need to completely overhaul our immigration system. I mean, you know, the Trump administration has made a complete and utter mess of our immigration system. We are treating the very people that come here, many of them that come here to work and, and, and provide us with food, our farm workers, um, uh, and, 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 and people who provide other essential services in our communities. Um, and we need to find a pathway for citizenship for, for those, for, for, for those, um, for, for that population, for those people who are such a fabric of our community. Um, and they should be, you know, they, they should be welcomed and, and, and brought in and as they are actually, I mean, the funny thing is, is there are all these stories about people like, yeah, well, yeah, he's my friend and ice is coming to get him. And, but he's such a great guy. And, uh, but those people over there, that's, that's the, that's what Trump's is all about. You know, that's, it's just, it's, it's a insanity. Um, so anyway, um, I, I feel like, you know, we, we need to completely overhaul everything that we are doing. Families are being separated. The whole immigration policy is designed to separate families as opposed to keeping families together as they, be, as they, as they move towards becoming citizens of the United States. Um, and there's just so much to do that, you know, kids and being separated from their parents, People being kept in private detention centers. So I worked on a bill, helped unleash that bill and get it onto the floor to move us towards uh, getting rid of the pi private detention center in, in Tacoma. And, uh, you know, lots of changes to be made in our immigration system, shall we say. You mentioned earlier in our discussion that we would get to health care, and so we shall. Uh, the New York Times reported on Monday that nearly 5.4 million Americans lost health care insurance in the pandemic. You are a proponent of uh, Medicare for all. 
this is something that's going to obviously likely have to happen over a long transition period. So I would ask you, given the crises that we're facing in healthcare right now, what would you like to do in the immediate to get people covered who have lost healthcare? Well, I think the immediate thing is, is to move people who've lost healthcare into a public system. Um, and, you know, it's sort of like a Medicare for all trial um, and that there are policies out there. You know, I think Bernie and Pramila in particular have some policies that would help us move in that direction. And uh, so it's sort of this, you know, a public option that people come onto as they're losing their um, health insurance. So so that so that's the first thing. I think there's a big opportunity to just start moving people into a public system, and we should we should we should move on that as quickly as we possibly can. Um, you know, the other things that need to happen, we've got to give the federal government negotiating powers around drug prices. I mean, big pharma just has us, you know, totally over the barrel with t- terrible terrible price gouging. And um, that, that's not working for our people in this country. Um, so we've got to have negotiating power, that is for sure. Um, and, you know, big pharma, very powerful, um, very, very, very powerful lobby. And then, you know, getting the profits out of our medical system is super important. The average CEO, healthcare CEO, $7.7 million last year. Now, I have a friend, great insurance, got laryngeal cancer, ended up with $10,000 worth of bills that they weren't, wasn't covered in their very good insurance, had to start a GoFundMe campaign while, a health, while our, our health CEOs, healthcare CEOs are making $7.7 million. There is something seriously wrong with that problem. I mean, something seriously wrong with that. There's something seriously wrong <laughs> and we need to fix it. And that's why I'm so excited about Indivisible because that is a clear that is a clear position that you have taken and we are organizing and moving towards, and, and the public opinion is really moving towards Medicare for all. Um, and, and that is very encouraging. I think people see that having, uh, you know, having profit in healthcare is not going to move us towards a system that we are covering every single, um, every single person in, in, this, in this country. We just had an audience question go by uh, from Courtney asking if you have taken uh, any money from uh, health care concerns. I assume the answer is no. So I, I did get a check from Gilead, which is a pharmaceutical company, um, which I did return. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about that because it is an interesting it, w- it is an interesting issue that came up in the legislature. So Gilead provides a very... Um, a really excellent drug, an HIV drug. Um, and they came to me and uh, we are the only state in the nation that Medicaid doesn't cover that particular drug. And so people who are on Medicaid in this country don't have access. It's a you know once a day kind of drug that is um, superior and often the choice of, of many people. And so I actually worked with Gilead to try and change that situation in our um, operating budget to get to, to get Medicaid to cover that particular um, drug. And I worked with the LGBTQ community um, as well, who was, who, who was uh, working on that. And I am part of the LGBTQ caucus, um, which is why Gilead actually came to me to say, can we work on this together? And so, um, so that, that's actually, you know, that was 
part of the reason that the check came because of the good work I did. And unfortunately we were unsuccessful in actually making that happen. Um, but did you uh, say you the, returned the check? I did return it. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about something else. You recently responded to the Supreme Court ruling exempting employers from having to cover birth control for employees on religious or moral grounds. And you said that it bolstered the case for Medicare for all. And I I would ask you, both as somebody who's running for office and as somebody who worked for NARAL, uh, your thoughts generally on the ruling. And I would love to hear you make the connection between that and the need for single-payer health care. Oh, the the need for... What is it, 50%, maybe it's even 70% of our hospitals are controlled by religious interests that don't necessarily agree with a full range of reproductive health care and abortion in particular, uh, birth control also, but also um, in states where uh, the, the, the uh, right to die, um, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting what... Uh, I've actually been engaged in this issue, actually worked on the campaign. Um, but the, you know, death with dignity um, also is an issue that um, religiously uh, run hospitals don't often allow physicians to uh, counsel their patients on that and provide the kind of health care that people are wanting. So, you know, that's an employer who is choosing the health insurance of you as the employee, and they are dictating what kind of care you can get from your provider based on the insurance not covering certain things. Um, And it's also tied to hospitals that are not necessarily providing the kind of care. So if we had a single payer system with those kinds of decisions made not by your employer, but by people who are writing and working to provide full-on care to people, we could avoid that situation. I will uh, I, I will be very candid and say I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, and you've laid the case out perfectly. I want to ask you about something that came up in a recent debate. You were criticized by fellow candidate Phil Gardner about so-called red boxes on your campaign website, which he asserts contain guidelines for receiving money from super PACs. Uh, the claim is that you and other candidates are essentially getting around campaign finance rules that bar coordination between campaigns and super PACs by putting this information inside of a red box on your site. I'd love to give you the opportunity to address this. Yeah. So um, the, the the concept of a red box is perfectly legal, um, obviously, or, you know, but all three, you know, uh, two of my other Two of the other candidates in this race are doing that as well. Marilyn Strickland and, and Christine Reeves. Right. And I, um, uh, so it's perfectly legal. And it, it is an opportunity to um, talk about things that you care about and messages that you care about and um, different sorts of voters that um, you that you are really working hard to communicate with. And so it, you know, there are lots of groups who have endorsed me. I mean, we went through them, you know, at the beginning in the, in the slides and those, those, uh, those organizations want to help me get elected because they think that I'm the, I'm going to be the best person to get stuff done in Congress around progressive issues and moving issues forward. And so the so-called red box is an opportunity 
um, for for my campaign to talk about issues that are important to this campaign and um, and people that are important to the campaign. And it's public knowledge. Anyone can look at that. It's not about super PACs because I don't think any super PACs are really that interested in me. Um, it, it may have to do with organizations who are supporting me and who have endorsed me and um, may want to spend money, which they, again, are legally entitled to do um, that are not necessarily connected, that do not flow through my campaign. So it's independent expenditures, um, something that is, you know, for better or for worse, is part of our political system at this moment, both at the state and the federal level. I think the assertion is that this rides some sort of, it's in some sort of ethical gray area. Do you agree with that? Um, I guess if I were writing campaign finance laws, um, I would definitely, would definitely seek, I mean, I just am not sure that independent expenditures generally are sort of, you know, sort of the, the way that we want to communicate. I would actually rather be working directly with, you know, with, uh, organizations that want to work with me to help me get my message out. Um, so I would sort of look at the whole independent expenditure, whether that's at the state or the federal level and kind of, kind of look at whether or not we should move away from that system. I personally believe that we should move towards public financing. Um, it is a challenge for us to, raise money in the level that we need to, to get our message out. And um, all of this super PAC and IEs and, uh, you know, all this stuff would just go away if we had public financing. Let's switch over and uh, have some audience questions. We had quite a few. I'll get to as many as I can. We'll start with Yana, who asks, how are you helping military families? Uh, She says, many suffer lack of timely VA medical attention. Yeah, well, you know, I mean... And this is a big uh, issue in your district, I should mention. Yeah, yes. JBLM is one of the largest uh, uh, installations in the nation. Um, It is fully encompassed in the district, so Joint Base Lewis-McChord, and and it is bisected by um, I-5. So one of the things that I have worked on is transportation through that corridor. I've worked with um, the 28th Legislative District members, Mari Levitt and Christine Kilduff, both who have endorsed me. And we've done a lot of work to really try and identify um, monies in our transportation budget to create a plan to really try and ease that congestion. Now, the federal government is going to have quite a, a role to do to play in making sure that that rail line has um, uh, some at-grade crossings removed and we move that up so that people can sort of on the base can kind of flow freely and not create traffic jams. So that is one issue, um, kind of a bread and butter issue in this district, the infrastructure and how it impacts Lakewood and Stillicum. Um, and so we're all, we're all working on that and um, I'm excited to get to work on that. You know, the, the VA, one of the things that's a problem at the VA that I want to change is that there is not, that there is not care for women. So they don't have basic um, uh, mammogram, you know, machines. They don't have, you know, sort of basic women health opportunities there. And so women have to go off base to get that kind of care. And I want to change that <clears throat> because I want to be welcoming to women who choose to serve in that way, and they should be served and, and given the same kind of healthcare opportunities that men are given. So that is definitely something, um, Yana, that I plan on working on very hard is, is trying to move the VA 
towards better care of women and more full care of women. Um, in addition to that, spouses have very significant challenges as they're sort of plucked out of um, their community and put into a new community where they often have to find a job. And um, I worked on legislation <coughs> in, the, um, in the state legislature around licensure for um, spouses, well, really for anyone, but it, it definitely helps military spouses. The other issue is housing, whether that be for um, active duty, that, you know, housing is so tight in, in the South Sound. We need to be creating more housing and more opportunities for people to find um, more affordable housing. Um, and then veterans, there's, a, uh, you know, also same thing. A lot of people come, they stay. That create that adds to our housing issues. So we really need to densify our housing, build more housing in dense areas, um, and 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 increase the supply, thereby bringing down the price. That would be the hope there around housing. And then finally, veterans on housing. You know, our Vash HUD program has 300 uh, um, vouchers. What was the name of the program? Vash HUD, I believe it's called. It's a it's a it's a housing it's a voucher program. For veterans, for homeless veterans, um, to get to find housing, and um, it needs to be reformed. It's not working for our communities because of the housing, the high cost of housing here. Um, it just isn't applying. So there's some reform that needs to happen in that space. Um, so those are some of the things that I would like to do in in that space. And I do want to say I'm I'm very committed to making sure that our veterans and our active military um, service um, uh, active active duty folks are provided, you know, good health care, um, education opportunities that they so deserve, mental health, huge issue. I mean, we have very high suicide rate amongst our veterans and active duty military um, and, and, and housing. So very committed to that. Um, and, and I think when we're talking about defunding, I think there are, you know, I'm not interested in spending money on continuing to create weapons of mass destruction. I mean, it, it's very clear that we could probably devote most of the show uh, to this very issue. Um, yes, we could. I, I, Breck has a question for you, and he wants to know what your position on school-based COVID testing is at all levels and sites. I will broaden that question a little bit. I would like for you, for you to address that, certainly, but I would also ask your thoughts generally on schools and, and their plan to open this fall. Can we just get rid of Betsy DeVos right away? <laughs> <laughs> That would be the first step. Uh, so we're not going to fund schools that don't open. And yet this virus is really transmitted by people being close together and schools actually 35 kids in a classroom. I don't see it. Um, I, I mean, I just don't see it, you know, particularly with the rise and the spike of cases. I mean, I, I'll be the first one to say if my kid could go back to school, I will be sending my kid to school. The online learning thing did not work for my child. Um, so I think we need to be really investing in helping teachers figure out how to engage kids. And we need to be working with our kids. You know, my son wouldn't turn on his screen. You know, it, for us, it's just a, we just do that. We, we don't, you know, but it's a privacy issue for kids. They don't want to open up the screen to have their bedroom being shown in the background um, or for whatever reason. But there's a lot of work to do to try and figure out how teachers can engage kids in the online format. You know, 
maybe we have more sort of outdoor opportunities for kids. Um, I do, you know, I have talked with, I just was on the phone with a, a, an Olympia school board member who's had some really fantastic ideas about, um, about how we, she called it flip, flip, flip education, um, where you're sort of, you know, you're engaging the child in an online situation with a lot of, a lot of, um, requests to kind of go back and go back and do the research and do the work and come back and really present kind of a broader scope of what you might actually have in an hour long, um, just classroom, you know, in-person classroom experience. So I, I, I think there's a lot of great out ideas out there and we need to work and, and provide resources. The federal government should be providing resources to schools, not taking them away to help teachers figure out how to do engagement online. Cause I, I am feeling less and less, less confident, but we're in Olympia, you know, my school district here that my child goes to is kind of developing a hybrid situation. So they're just going to be in the classroom a couple of days a week and then have some online support uh, the rest of the rest of the time. So hopefully that's going to work a little bit better if we can actually get our kids back into school. We are just about out of time. There were a few other questions that we're not going to have a chance, unfortunately, to get to, but I will make sure that they make their way to you, Representative. I will just ask a final hypothetical for you. If the Dems win the Senate and the White House, here's the fingers crossed again, and, and that the House stays in Democratic control, how do you think about undoing the damage of a Trump administration? What does day one look like for you? Well, I mean, day one starts the day after the election, if I'm elected, and and that is building relationships across the Congressional Progressive Caucus in the beginning, um, and you know, building on the endorsements that I've already gotten, the relationships that I've already started. So I got a little bit of head start there, um, and and just really continuing to build towards a really comprehensive, you know, working with. I mean, they've already done a lot of work in the last two years of really figuring out what the policies are that we want to move forward quickly. Um, so I would say, you know, just diving in and coming up to speed and figuring out what my role is and what my niche is going to be in the in the caucus and um, and 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 working to build support um, with the public and uh, within my caucus and across the caucus and across the aisle for undoing just about everything Trump has done. Um, so I, I mean, it's hitting the ground running. And, you know, I mean, the first thing I think we need to do is we need to undo the Trump tax cuts because, you know, that's just putting money into the pockets of the wealthy. And that is making the problem worse that uh, the problem of this shrinking middle class and the, the uh, concentration of wealth in the hands of a few. So I think we need to address taxes and we need to address the response to rebuilding our economy and making sure that the public health and, and the, the racial inequities that we're finding in our public health are um, addressed. And finally, you know, we really do need to deal with police accountability and institutional racism. I mean, those are kind of the top priorities um, sort of globally. Um, and then I'm gonna get hard to work on climate change policy. It's an awful lot, um, and uh, we, I, I want to thank you for 
all of your your thoughts, your candor, your time. I want to bring in your campaign manager, Bailey, uh, Bailey Burgess. Uh, Bailey, we know that people are looking to get involved. Um, what can people do to help out? Obviously, these are unique times with uh, trying to run a campaign during uh, a pandemic. So I know that you have a lot of we have a lot of potential volunteers out there right now, not just listening tonight, but also listening on terrestrial radio and on the podcast. So uh, where can people go and, and what are you looking for right now? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity and joining this to Town Hall to hear Beth speak. If you're here, you know how important grassroots activism is for fighting for these progressive causes that we all care about. And like Beth said, this is one of the best seats in the entire country for us to pick up a progressive and a safe blue open district. And so to do that, we really need volunteers. Beth has shown that she will stand up to corporate special interests. She will take on tough lobbies like oil and the chemical industry, but we're not going to be able to elect her to Congress without your help. Her campaign has the grassroots and the people power, and that is going to help Beth win, but we really need to work to make it happen. So we need about 60 to 70 more phone bank ships to reach our goals to get ballots out during our GOTV period. Ballots are getting mailed out tomorrow and on Friday. And that that sounds like a lot and it sounds daunting, but if half of the people on this call signed up for just one phone bank shift, we would be halfway to our goal. In addition um, to what our field team is putting together. If half of you signed up and then brought a friend, we would surpass that goal and just knock it out of the park. So the thing that we really need is phone banking. We have an auto dialer that cycles through the numbers so you don't have to ring after ring after ring and get lots of voicemails, but we also have a regular phone bank if you've ever done that before. And I'm going to be posting links to that in the chat, but we have a really easy online software. We train you at every single phone bank. We make sure you have plenty of times to get your questions asked. We pair you up with a buddy so you can practice, and then we get you out on the phones. So it is crunch time while we get ballots out over the next couple of weeks. Um, we make it super easy, I promise. I will post the links to the chat, and if you have any questions about phone banking, you can definitely reach out to me as well. And since podcasting is an audio medium, what is the website that people can go to? www.mobilize.us slash dolio for Congress. Or you can just check out Beth's website, bethdolio.com. There is a G in there. It is silent. So B-E-T-H-D-O-G-L-I-O.com. And we will, if you are curious, we can also post the link on her social media. So there is a way for you to get involved. Could I make one last plug? Of course you may. We are in the final three weeks of this campaign, and every dollar that I'm able to raise between now and the primary is a dollar that I will be able to use to communicate with voters about the progressive vision that we all share tonight. So I would also ask that you think about making a donation to the campaign. Um, it's super important, unfortunately, because we don't have public financing, um, and we have to work within the system that we have. So I'm not taking corporate PAC dollars. I'm relying on all of you. And so I would ask that you consider that um, as we close out tonight's um event. Thank you again to Representative Beth Delio. Thanks also to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julie Andrzejewski with Indivisible Tacoma. A reminder to join us on Tuesday, July 21st for a town hall with candidates from the 16th Legislative District. Find out more information at the Washington State Indivisible Podcast community on Facebook. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at DemcastUSA.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.